Thanks, everybody, for calling in. I think few would argue that you can't know where you're going without knowing where you've been. As a web exclusive, KPFA is offering a collection of DVDs and CDs about the history of KPFA. The documentary, KPFA on Air, covering the founding of KPFA up till 2000. And the CD collection, Three Generations of KPFA, featuring over 28 hours of historic KPFA broadcasts. Visit kpfa.org for more information and to take advantage of these special web exclusives. And you are listening to KPFA 94.1, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, and 88.1 KFCF in Fresno. Also online at kpfa.org. Stay tuned next for Jennifer Stone. It's 3 o'clock. Happy. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up in darkness from the ones who walk in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadow out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, she said, <laughs> choking. Oh, boy. Uh, today is Tuesday, and we are in a marathon, folks. We are having a very difficult time trying to get um, our needs met. We need some money. Now, I'm going to do something else first today because... I think you're probably a little weary, just a little weary. Uh, what I thought I would do, I brought in, somebody made me a wonderful set of CDs, three CDs. And we're going to use those as premiums. This is a pure vanity, darlings. This is just those of you who think that you really need to have uh, CDs of Jennifer's tone on your uh bookcase let's see the book is telegraph avenue then oldie but goodie and you can get three cds along with a hundred dollar membership to k p f a that's what you can do uh you know the phone numbers here and i think what we will do let's see frank frank sterling is in the other room and he's got um he's got uh, about 15 minutes or more on tape. We wanted to give you at least a good sample of what this CD is about. And then I will come back on and, uh, yell at you and persuade you to, uh, 
pay us at once because Frank has a lean and hungry look. These engineers, you know, they must be fed. This is Jennifer Stone once again. Let's hear that excerpt, Frank, from uh, Telegraph Avenue then. This is Jennifer Stone with a reading from my memoir, Telegraph Avenue Then. These are loose leaves from a little black book dated 1966 through 1977. The first is autumn, 1966. Lafayette, California, last year's Christmas tree lights still strung out on the mantelpiece. One by one, they burn out. It's August, September. There are still three lights burning. Early December 1966, I get a divorce. I'd rather be lonely alone. My next door neighbor buys my house. She wants to fix it up, she says. Rent it for income, she says. The driveway is buried in leaves, the trees and vines have grown over the long wooden porches across the roof until the window grew dark in my bedroom. Now I will cut my way out of my cul-de-sac. I will leave the woods which are my backyard. The graves of dead pets will be deserted. The neighbor comes with buckets of white paint. One color, she says. White or beige, she says. Then use accessories, color accents. White paint across the wooden beams of my ceilings. Over the bricks of the fireplace, there is no stopping her. By the window in my bedroom, there is a vine creeping up the wall. Once the roses grew into the room, falling through that window, she paints over the vine in her haste, stops to scrape it loose and cut it back. As I trek back and forth, packing the trunk of my car, I hear her mutter to herself, God, you think nobody'd lived here. December 1966 buy Indian tea lemon shampoo cinnamon candles a bottle of Baileys some Irish mist yes go to a coffee house pick up a man oh bring him home to desecrate my marriage bed afterwards we shower he looks clinically at my stomach scar, my small breasts. I forget about the rites of passage, the desecration ritual I'd planned. 
I reach out for forgiveness, bury my face in his shoulder. I, I guess we have not seen the same movies. I expect the same response I got ten years ago. He is about my age, but he is still a young man, strange. I dress and light the cinnamon candles, throw pillows on the floor, logs on the fire, pour the Irish mist, music and incense. Dutiful domestic. My son falls out of his crib, soaking wet. Dreaming of spiders again. I give him half a tablet of Valium and stuff him back in bed before he can make a scene. I shut the bedroom door tight. Returning to the fireside, I discover the man has been impressed with me after all. He's drinking my liquor and looking around. He grins. <laughs> You're ready for more, aren't you? January 1967. Wipe the peanut butter off the table, clear a space for myself, ache with guilt. Take both sons to the child care center. Wait while Simon sits outside the gate. To get ready, he says. He has to get his face under control. I am angry with him every morning now. Sure, I guess I made him dependent. I let him think he could always stay at home with me. Hell, he's only three. At the first place I left him, they had this chicken pox, and he got it, and he has scars from chicken pox. His older brother, Sam, has been to school before. He knows the ropes. But suppose... Suppose Simon is a sissy, Jesus Christ. Then one day after school, Sam tells me about the room at the center, the room with no windows where they put you in and lock the door and you stay there alone until you're all good again. An old lady put my little kid in that room every day. Well, hey, says Sam, my great big six-year-old kindergartner. Yeah, everyone tortures little kids. I get drunk. This is how it starts then, the self-pity and the whine of woman alone, woman with child on her back, woman with woe and wringing of hands and getting to be such a bore, no one listens to her anymore. <laughs> Move to Berkeley. Give way to joy. Seven lovers now. Take the telephone to bed with me each night to talk to this one while that one sleeps beside me. I win for a change. How's this for power? Here's looking at you, kid. I ran into a brick wall and came out the other side. Now... I wish to record the myth-shattering events of the afternoon of my life. Gangway, Edna St. Vincent Millay. <laughs> Edmund Wilson said she had 19 love affairs, but just couldn't help it, poor thing. 
So if I'm doing it, who can say I'm not the type? If only my energy doesn't give out. If only I don't get my scripts mixed. If only I don't get my throat cut. Summer, 1967. We talk all night. His melted gold in bed. I'd give anything to keep him because he allows me to be me. I may even say he encourages it, which is risky. He also has what seems to be an informed sense of humor. We laugh so much, I seem to be getting healthy again, but damn it, sooner or later, he drinks to stupor. Oh, one night he sat on the edge of the bed and set his hair on fire with his cigarette. I watched my family die of booze, falling apart like that. It terrifies me. I threw him out, but now sometimes remembering... Well, I wish I'd kept him anyway. Buried him in the backyard when he died. Poured libations of bourbon on his grave. The end of autumn, 1967, I read my old college diary. Where were you in 52? I was staring at the rain in the wooded womb of a West Coast women's college. Long nights the eucalyptus trees beat at my window until the pain broke and the rain blew across my room. I was up from Southern California, and here, here in the Bay Area, well, this was ultima cure for me, the ultimate limit. I thought it was a scene from Wuthering Heights, the storm beating at the heart, that pathetic fallacy, the notion that nature uh, sympathizes, empathizes with human moods, Echoes the ache of souls in torment. Whatever. It was because I was 18. And in love. I was in love with a jaded Jewish student of the high-strung, bitter sort. I talked to my old teacher, one of the Cassandra sort, and she said, Well, my dear, you must study the romantics. Romantics tend to act their passions out. Uh, of course, they write about them as well. That's their tradition. You will find that a stoic lifestyle is wiser, but it takes time and discipline. Some of the English romantics were stoic, she said, but it made them sick. You, she told me, are a hell-bent romantic. You may burn out and never grow old enough to become much more than a cynic. Romantics die young or get killed fighting in Greece. Once upon a time, they mostly died of tuberculosis. But since antibiotics, there is only neurosis and cigarettes to substitute for TB. Well, she said, you'll learn. If you need one, there's always a revolution going on somewhere. There's always a front for liberation, even at home. I don't think you're the type, she said. So few are chosen. I think you've got a low pain threshold. 
Perhaps you'll come through it all. If you can get through love and the theater before you're thirty, you may amount to something. Always remember, classicism is health. Romanticism is disease. <laughs> She said lots of things like that. Comedy ends in marriage. Tragedy ends in death. History ends in time. That sort of thing. She advised me to keep a diary, a journal, to record the events in the moment. Yes, she said it would settle. She said that if I did that when I was her age, I could look back on my life and see what hit me. I looked up diary in the dictionary. It means lasting one day, one day at a time. Then, one page after another adds up to a life. My diary from that time, from the early 1950s, is filled with events, plays, dance, books consumed, clothes bought and worn out, people known and worn thin, an endless stream of feelings pouring out, gushing out about who I was or wasn't. I'm sorry to say that I burned those pages a few years later. I was afraid someone might see how much I cared about all those men everywhere saying how things should be, how I should be. Men, the real romantics, the ones who made me up, who trapped me in their imaginations. The poets, lovers, writers, fathers, brothers, teachers, I was mired in their mythos. Of course, I, I wanted their approval, their love. Charlotte Bronte called them the lords of creation. <laughs> Whatever they are, they sure as hell seem to have things under control. They had me under control as a girl. Even when I was rebelling, it was always their movie I was in. I burned my journals because it was too painful to remember the kind of fool I'd been. Something on the order of Tess of Durberville, Thomas Hardy's tragic Tess. She fled from vile seducers and. Hid in a cul-de-sac in the woods, with dying birds clustered in the trees above her. Yes, Tess was my model. Hiding in the woods, surrounded with wounded birds shot by the hunters during the day, all night, while Tess sleeps in the leaves, the victims of the nineteenth-century sportsmen bled on her. Falling dead all around her while she tried to sleep in the dark in the woods. Yes. At the end of the book, she kills her seducer to reclaim her honor, or whatever it is, 
Thomas Hardy imagines a woman's honor to be. The long arm of the law, patriarchal law, catches up with Tess at Stonehenge. <laughs> Why did she flee back to the sacred place, the pre-Christian site of ancient rites? I think it was the right instinct, but the wrong era. After they hang her, the virtuous man in the story gets her younger sister as a kind of consolation prize. Yes, her younger sister. Anyway, someone very pretty. Well, I've been to Stonehenge now, and there's no refuge there. I'm done with being a sacrifice in the land of the patriarch, and I've certainly forgotten how to be a muse. I'm done with love for love's sake. Takes too many weeknights. In the diaries that I have kept, those that are still on my shelf, I have played all too many parts. Now it's time to file my final report. I've done my living. I've done my lying. Now I can edit the agony. Perhaps a dozen pages will keep. I think that's it, Frank. That's the point at which you cut off. We have about eight minutes more. It says here, take eight minutes to demand cash. I believe in the great god Moloch. Moloch is the god of gold. Allen Ginsberg used to say, one of those poets, yes, Allen, yes, Ginsberg, he would say, do you believe in Moloch or not? I'm thinking of that book called The Holy Barbarians, in which the the beatniks uh, stood their ground. I remember I was very young in those days, uh, at least younger than I am now, and I thought they were onto something, but I was a little scared of them. I didn't want to die young of alcoholism. Uh, that was Two deja vu in my family. Everyone died young of alcoholism in my family, and I wanted to be different, you know. When I look back and uh, read some of these excerpts from the 1960s, 70s, 80s, my God, the things we did, especially with the children, Valium, I'd be, I'd be in trouble. I'd be, um, well, child abuse is what they would call it today. Worse yet, I might be dismissed as a sentimentalist. Yes, anybody who wrings their hands over mothers and children, my God. Anyway, lots of this material is what a friend of mine called post-symbolist. <laughs> I, I can't help it. I was the sort of English major who was, what is it, I was stuck between romanticism and all of the the new criticism drove me crazy. Uh, I thought it was all just elaborate BS. Actually, I like to do compare and contrast. Uh, I remember sitting down and making a list the other day of all of the women back in 60s, 70s, and 80s who tried to write themselves, you know, and most of them were dismissed as being confessional. There was that. 
And then, of course, the the uh, thoughtful male writers pointed out that that's all writing is. It's all, all autobiography. Sooner or later, when you boil it down, that's all it is. Uh, I have so many uh, records and tapes of what I've done on KPFA now that it would take me a couple more lifetimes to sift through it all, synthesize it. I keep thinking that synthesis is my business. Emily Dickinson wrote, she said, my business is circumference. I think in the 20th century and now the 21st, uh, for some of us, our task is not just synthesis, but a kind of, a kind of collage. As it's funny, there's so much stuff that, what is that? We just, we just skim along the surface and, uh, take bits and bits. I, I guess, said the other day a friend of mine said that she couldn't start writing because she hadn't read everything yet. I said, well, I, I think it's okay to start now. <laughs> if you, if you've been reading for 20 years, you're probably ready to go. I need to give you our phone number and tell you that the reading you just heard was excerpts from a book of mine titled Telegraph Avenue Then by Jennifer Stone from Regents Press. Um, oh, yes, nice review. Small press review says honesty is her only religion. <laughs> Another review I remember said she's so down to earth you have to take off your shoes to read her. Anyway, I guess... Uh, it seems so, so vain, so, uh, what is it, so smug to imagine that you have grown wiser in your old age. Uh, maybe, uh, actually I've just found more and more things not to be wise about. Somebody says that wisdom is a virtue of old age and that it mostly comes to those who, when young, were neither wise nor prudent. Prudent, I never was. Uh, I do not think I was reckless, but yes, there were times, Oscar Wilde says, he says, I can resist everything but temptation. That's about it. It's strange when I go over these materials, uh, it occurs to me how out of date, how out of fashion it is to write about uh what is it? The individual self, the inner self, the uh, little oversoul. Um, it's so strange. It's almost as if that period were uh, just narcissistic. Um, I think that, you know, I'm after something I would call a new pagan pragmatism. I want a genuine nature religion. I want Green Party politics. But all of that still just sounds to me like it's just, you know, politically correct uh, party line stuff. Uh, I'm not sure where literature is going. I guess I'll have to sit around and find out. I need you to call in in case there's anybody out there who would like to subscribe to KPFA. You get a super subscription for a hundred dollars and uh that's the one with three cds you can get a subscription for a mere 25 dollars if you just want to be a member of this radio station and that's the thing that we really we really need to have you do the number here is five one oh 
1-800-439-5732. That's 1-800-439-5732. That's the Hey KPFA number. 1-800-HEY-H-E-Y. Hey KPFA. Once again, I'll rattle it off in just numbers. The local area code is 510, the five and dime area code. 510-848-5732. Next week I'll be back on the air and I think at that time I may have a chance to read excerpts from my movie book Mind Over Media and my collection of essays mostly on women writers called Stone's Throw and maybe a little excerpt from a very early fiction collection called Over by the Caves. Uh, Oh boy, we're going to get a new mythos if it kills us boys and girls. Uh, We're due, we're overdue for a paradigm shift. Get rid of all this pro-patria crapola. Till next time, this has been Jennifer Stone. Go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. The Arab Cultural and Community Center presents Souq al-Arabi, the 16th annual Arab Cultural Festival, on Saturday, October 2nd from 12 to 6 p.m. in Union Square, San Francisco, located at Geary and Stockton Street. This year's festival will showcase the arts, food, traditions, and music from around the Arab world, including Moroccan Gnawa music by Yasser Shadli, Bushayb Abdelhadi, and ensemble, Arabic classical and 